0: two readings are up there. The first is Esther chapter 5, verse 1 to 14. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will, be given, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his best friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. The next reading is James chapter 4, verse 5 to 10. Or do you think scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks,
1: Thanks so much, Tash. Uh, welcome once again. If you've slipped in since we began, it's really great to have you here. Great to be together as we turn to this next part of this intriguing story of Esther. Um, let me pray quickly. Father, thank you for your word, the Bible. Please would you speak to us now, and please give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So RMS Titanic, she was the largest ship in her day 1912. And as we all know, her sinking was the deadliest peacetime sinking of a ship as 1,500 people lost their lives in those lethal frozen waters. Why did that accident become an atrocity? Famously, Titanic was built to carry 64 lifeboats. She only carried 16. Before the voyage, the ship's captain, Edward Smith, declared that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. He said, modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Everyone believed that Titanic was unsinkable. Even after the collision had been made known, a telegram was released by the International Mercantile Marine Company, which issued a statement that, despite the lack of communication, it was unsinkable. Titanic was a tragedy because of pride. Quote, There's no fault which makes people more unpopular and no fault which we are less conscious of in ourselves. The more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. So said C.S. Lewis, the great philosopher. He describes pride as the great sin, the sin underneath all other sins, the sin from which all other sins grow. He gets us to think, doesn't he? He said this. He said, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? Revealing, isn't it? Essentially, the issue is how great do you think you are? It's all about comparison, isn't it? The pleasure of being above others. I think he's onto to something, isn't he? I mean, how do you value yourself at work? We're always comparing ourselves, aren't we? Uh, I'm performing better than her. I'm not as quick as him, but I'm pretty sure I'm better at my job than he is. What about at home? How do you feel about your home? Well, It's not as spacious as theirs, but at least I'm higher up the ladder than him. We spend our lives figuring out who we're superior to or who we're inferior to. At the end of the day, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's self-obsession. Well, the Bible speaks into our complex human condition in so many brilliant ways. And today, this part of the story of Esther, as we keep journeying through this intriguing book, it shows us the rise and fall of the great baddie, Haman. In a sense, we're meant to boo and hiss. He's such a comic figure. But we're also meant to stop and think. We're meant to think, is there in any way a little bit of Haman in me? Uh, quick recap, if you haven't been here for the first chunk of Esther, uh, we're in Persia, it's about 480 BC. Uh, God's Old Testament people, the Jews, are in exile. Uh, God seems far away. He seems silent. He seems absent. But even though famously his name isn't even mentioned in this book of Esther, his fingerprints are all over it. He's directing things behind the scenes. He's brought Esther to the throne as queen. Her cousin Mordecai is a civil servant, but their whole people are living under the threat of death. Haman, with his devilish hatred of God and his people, he's used his prime ministerial position to manipulate the king into signing off a genocide for all the people of Mordecai and Esther. The only hope for God's people, the Jews, would be if Esther somehow rises to the challenge and seeks to defend and save her people. She knows that she will have to risk her life to even go into the throne room of the king, this capricious and unpredictable King Xerxes. But she decides to do so. We saw that last time at the end of chapter 4. She decides to go to see, if she can, save her people. And this is where we pick up in chapter five. So act one, you follow along on the back of the service sheet if you want. We're going to work through these three acts and see what the implications are for us. Act one, Esther's shrewdness and skill. Uh, she dresses up, verse one, hoping for the best. She's identifying with her condemned people, but also claiming her royal position. And the tension is palpable, isn't it? Can you feel it? As she, she stands there in the throne room. There's King Xerxes enthroned opposite her, waiting to make eye contact. What's he going to do? He's surrounded by the guards with their axes, ready to smite anyone who comes in uninvited. What's going to happen? Well, verse two, she meets with his favor. He holds out the golden scepter to say, you can come. Phew, that could have been, that could have been it. That could have been the end of it. But thankfully, on this third day, verse one, in the king's throne room, life overcame death. Well, Xerxes asks, verse three, what she wants with a promise of a generous response. Half my kingdom, it's, it's just a throwaway line. It's not a literal promise. It's a way of saying, go on, ask whatever you want. Now, this is the moment, isn't it? This is her moment. Save your people, Esther, go on, tell him. Tell him what Haman's done. Direct question, met with a strangely indirect answer, verse 4. She says, come to dinner <laughs> with Haman. Interesting. Well, the king's up for it. Um, Esther now has, what does she have? The two most powerful people in the world coming for dinner under her control. She's masterfully taking control of this perilous situation so they have their feast, they move on to the wine course, uh, they're chatting, and Xerxes asks Esther again, verse 6, come on, darling, what is it? Well, attention hasn't a lesson, has it? I mean, if, if you remember chapter 1, there the king was drinking wine after a feast, and in a moment of rage, he deposed his queen Vashti. What's he going to do this time? Who knows? Well, she's super courteous, verse 7, and she sticks to her careful plan. She gets these two guys to come to another feast. Now, What's she doing? Is she really pushing her luck here? Well, notice her last line. She says, then I will answer the king's question, end of verse 8. She's very skillfully and subtly taking control of this whole situation. It's almost as if the king is now under her control. She's ensuring that when the time comes to spill the beans to say what she really needs, it'll be impossible for him to resist. Now, just notice, if you've been with us through the story, notice how Esther has changed. I mean, do you remember the first few chapters? She was this quiet, passive, timid girl, just swept along by the currents of terrifying power and oppression. Well, since chapter 4, since her identity crisis moment, she's committed herself to God and his people, God is now transforming her to be used by him in an extraordinary way. And so just before we carry on, consider the parallel here. There's Esther standing in the king's presence. We were just singing about approaching the king's presence, weren't we? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. We don't stand before a, a whimsical despot like Esther did. No, we stand before a gracious and good king, almighty God. And by ourselves, we have no right to stand there before him. We ought to die for the, the rebellion, the pride, the corruption in our hearts. But God extends mercy to us. On the third day, as we all remember shortly at Easter, life overcomes death. And the more secure our identity is as beloved friends of the king, the more he can transform us, just like he did Esther, to be used in extraordinary ways. There's Act 1. Let's move on to Act 2, Haman's pride and fall. Haman is in high spirits, isn't he? Verse 9. He's had a great time at the feast. He's loving it. He's blissfully unaware of what Esther is up to, blissfully unaware of what God is up to. But on his way home, he passes Mordecai, his enemy, Mordecai's finishing up his day's work. And as always, Mordecai won't bow to Haman. Haman's out to kill him and his whole people. So once again, Haman's fragile ego is pierced one more time. He's a big deal. How can this be? At verse 10, he, he holds in his rage. Well, well done him. Uh, he gets home and he blurts it all out. Verse 11 to 13. Ah, this Jew Mordecai, I hate him. Who does he think he is? Look at me, I've got many sons, many medals. I get invited to the most exclusive banquets with the king and queen. But all this is nothing as long as Mordecai is around. Any veneer of decorum is stripped away and you see the real heart underneath. The ugliness of his self-obsession. I mean, he's even boasting to his wife about how many sons he has. <laughs> uh, I was there. <laughs> the self-obsession is extraordinary. Well, they advise him, verse 14, get rid of him. See him off. You know you can. You've got the power. And this is where pride ends up, isn't it? When it's full grown, it values honor for self more highly than the very lives of others. And so he builds this enormous wooden pole. It was for gruesome, public, humiliating execution. There you are, this is what they did, those poles there on the right. It's, it's horrific. And this one he builds, 50 cubits, that's 23 meters. It's, it's enormous. It would have towered above the whole city so that everyone could see. Little does he know he's measuring the height of his pride and preparing for his downfall. Meanwhile, in the king's bedroom, chapter six, verse one, servant, I can't sleep. Get that book of how brilliant I am and how impressive my kingdom is and read it to me. You see chapter six, verse one, he can't sleep. He gets the book out. Someone starts reading verse two. He flicks through, which story shall we have? Oh, here's a good one. Goes back to five years earlier. Bit of drama, that assassination attempt, not uncommon. Don't worry, king, remember, you sorted it out. It was all okay. All kept under control and dealt with professionally. But it, it triggers a memory for King Xerxes. Oh, yeah, Big Pharna, Terrace. I remember them. But did we ever honor Mordecai? The guy who dubbed them in. Just check the records. Okay, yeah, let me have a look. I mean, they always rewarded loyalty like this. That was crucial to keep the security of the whole palace intact. The servant checks the record. How odd. There's an outstanding balance. Mordecai was never rewarded. Well, the king's sleeplessness now suddenly leads to a surge of productivity in the middle of the night. This must be sorted out. Come on. Who's out in the court? Anyone out there? S- send me someone in. Send me an advisor. This king, as always, is pathetically unable to decide anything on his own. <laughs> So he asked if anyone's knocking around in the early hours. Any super keen employee pulling an all-nighter? Or well, verse 5, who happens to be there? But Haman. Haman's just come in. Now, why is he coming? Remember, to get the king to sign off his plan to have Mordecai executed. Haman, excellent, bring him in. He'll have a good idea. Now, just put yourselves in these two guys' heads, yeah? Remember, Haman hates nothing more than Mordecai. And the king intends to honour Mordecai. Neither of them know what the other is thinking. Isn't this just delicious? Look at verse 6 with me. Chapter 6, verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, well, for the man the king delights to honour let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. <laughs> Ouch. Excellent idea, thinks the king. Let's do it. Go and get all the stuff and do it for Mordecai. In fact, Haman, you would be a pretty good servant to lead the horse. <laughs> Verse 11, just imagine. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Can you imagine the scene? The, the crowds are cheering. They love a bit a royal pomp and ceremony. Just look at Haman's face. He <laughs> can't even glance up at Mordecai, can he? It is perfect humiliation. It's hilarious. But it's also tragic, isn't it? Proud Haman has begun to fall. Now, after this... Abject humiliation. He gets home and no doubt needs a pretty stiff drink. Verse 12, but he gets little comfort. His wife and friends seem to have somehow detected that God is at work for his people. See, end of verse 13, his advisors and his wife Sarah said to him, since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin and as she utters the words in verse 14, the guards arrive. Haman, you're wanted. At three, Haman's and Mordecai's swap. It's Esther's second banquet now. Verse two, the question comes again from the king. Esther's now in an extremely precarious position. She's like a, a bomb detonator. One wrong move and everything blows up. But consider what she needs to do. Okay? She needs to accuse Haman without offending the king, who's actually the one who signed the death warrant. She needs to somehow turn the king against his close friend and advisor without getting him angry at her. Talk about nerves of steel. So the third time, the king asks, what's your petition? What's your request? And in her answer, verse three, she very cleverly distinguishes petition and request, and then unites them again. Do you see verse three, chapter seven? Then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, that is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. She unites her fate with her peoples. She's no longer hiding. She's one with them now. Verse four, I and my people have been sold. Do you see what she's doing? This is the first time she's revealed that she is one of these persecuted Jewish exiles as well. She binds her fate to theirs. Don't just save me, save us all. Now, she's choosing her words very carefully because, I mean, she could have just blurted it out, couldn't she? You signed the thing, you idiots! How could you? You didn't even know which people you were exterminating. How could you do this? <laughs> you didn't know what you were doing. You fool. But no. If she'd gone in like that, all guns blazing, no guarantee of success. She wouldn't have lasted a moment. Instead, she carefully says, we have been sold. <clears throat> and You're the one who accepted the bribe. She carefully <laughs> doesn't blame him and she doesn't name Haman yet. She's been buttering up the king with her flattery and, and now working him up to feel pity for her and concern for her people. It works. Xerxes' fury erupts in verse 5. Who is he? Where is he? He bolts up in wine-fueled rage, and now the pace of the story accelerates unstoppably as the whole thing unravels. Verse 6, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. There she is standing up, declaring it uh, and Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided for his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Haman is stunned. Xerxes is perplexed. He storms out to the garden in furious confusion. What to do? He falls down. Haman and begs for his life this amazing painting shows that the moment of drama there he is falling down before Esther he's panicking he's falling down and begging now Persian protocol forbade anyone from being closer than seven steps from a member of the king's harem but he's not thinking straight he's panicking verse 8 as Xerxes steps back inside he sees Haman desperately pleading with the queen falling onto her couch it's a fatal mistake the king now has reason to get rid of Haman while saving face himself. Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Haman is arrested. A servant knows about the pole that Haman had set up, and it feels rather fitting that Haman should now use it himself. How the proud has fallen. All of those circumstances that were completely outside Haman's control. The sleepless night. The incident from five years ago that wasn't rewarded. The part of the book that the guy turned to. When he should walk into the palace. Completely out of his control. And it led unstoppably to his downfall. One day he's on top of the world, boasting about all his achievements, proudly looking down on everyone. The next day he's being frog-marched to his execution. And so, chapter 8, verse 1, Mordecai is invited into the king's presence and he's finally honoured for saving the king's life. He's promoted to Haman's position, a prime minister. The stage is now set for the full deliverance of God's people. So, let's draw some of these threads together. I'd love us to take away three simple but life-changing implications from this story. First, God will save. Throughout this book, we've, we've seen time and again, haven't we, little glimmers, little hints of God at work behind the scenes. It's often been messy. It's, it's often been mysterious. What is God doing? Well, we often can't understand. Do you remember that image of the, the tapestry? It looks beautiful on one side, but the other side is all a, a mess of tangled threads and knots. We can't make sense of it all. But God is doing something. He's working it all together. And he's not just doing something. He's working it all towards saving his people. That is the goal. In the New Testament, Ephesians 1 says that when we come to know God in Jesus, we can look back and see that, quote, it was according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You see, this isn't just fatalism. Uh, 47% of the UK population believe in fates of some sort. There's something or someone behind the scenes. But no, this isn't impersonal. Fatalism. This is a, a gracious God using this world in all its mess and brokenness. Ultimately, somehow weaving all the threats together to bring us to Jesus. That is the goal. Your colleague who brought you to church. Your parent who prayed for you. Your friend who encouraged you to pray or ask you to consider if there's more to life than what we see. Countless circumstantial incidents across the years and decades. This life is often full of terrible, dark, painful things. The Bible knows that full well. But the path to God's joy it may well lead through swamps of suffering. In the end, God is working it together for salvation in Jesus. Is God calling you to himself to find lasting hope and peace in him beyond the grave? Maybe God has brought you to CCB today in order to tell you that he loves you and that he's inviting you to humble yourself before him and receive full forgiveness. Because second crucial lesson for us, the proud will fall. The suddenness of Haman's downfall is meant to be unnerving. He had all the power of the world at his fingertips, but he was up against the overruling plan and justice of God. Because the Bible gives us very good news about God, but it's also a mirror it shows up what we're really like on the inside. I don't know if you've seen the film Knives Out. Uh, very entertaining, though with the weirdest accent I think I've ever heard in Daniel Craig. I'll let you judge that. Um, now, I'll vote for the plot, but as with pretty much all murder mysteries, it's solved, in the end, by a chance event that the murderer could never have known or prevented. They always think they're going to get away with it, don't they? We, we proud humans, we're chronically self-deceptive. We think we'll get away with it. But the Bible says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Evil, it's not an impersonal thing just out there. Jesus himself said it's in here. It's in our hearts. This condition that's against what is perfectly good. It's ultimately against God's. And divine justice, it will punish it in the end. Our sin will find us out. C.S. Lewis again on prize. He said, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Our self-obsession means we're always looking down on others, and so we fail to look up and see a merciful God. But as we just sang, upward I look. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Have you looked up to him? Be warned, the proud will fall, but it's not too late. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. We read in James, he opposes the proud. That is a terrifying place to be. But he gives grace to the humble. Look up. Because third, Christ will exalt. Over the whole book of Esther, there's this question that's been kind of looming in the air. Who gets life and who doesn't? And at this point of climax, Esther courageously steps in to secure life for her people, just as Jesus courageously stepped in to secure life for us. And so I'd love you to take away today that, that comic brilliant image of the horse. Remember that? Uh, Mordecai on the king's horse, totally unexpectedly, extraordinarily being honored and delighted in by the king. He was just one of countless civil servants doing his job. No one special. In fact, his days were numbered, weren't they? He was one of the despised Jews preparing to be annihilated. But through God's wonderful subversion of the proud and exalting his people, Mordecai ended up paraded through the city. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. You see, the real surprise of this part of the story is this. Pride and self-exaltation is shown up in all its ugliness, but at the same time, it's implied that God will exalt his people in the end. How can that be? Only because, just as people swapped places in this story, Jesus humbled himself to swap places with us and lift us up. He came to be publicly humiliated and die on the wooden cross in our place for all our pride and sin. And so he lifts us up to full reconciliation with God. We're not just begrudgingly let in to his kingdom. We are welcomed by God with open, delighted arms. It's as if Jesus even clothes us in his royal robes. He delights in us. So friends, if you have come to Jesus and been reconciled to God through him, Christ lifts you up and delights in you. He says, this is the one I delight to honor. You see, we don't only have love from God, as amazing as that is. Yes, we crave love, but we also crave honor and recognition, don't we? And through faith in Jesus, we have love and delight and honor from the God of all glory. And that, that is what can truly free us from the slavery of self-obsession. He had to die for me. That humbles me. But he was glad to die for me. That exalts me. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for such a, a brilliant story. Thank you for showing us, not just entertainment, but showing us a warning that the crowns will fall. But thank you as well so much for assuring us through your Bible from beginning to end that you really do work in all things to bring us to Jesus and to bring about salvation. Please would you help each one of us to look up to him and receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.